This past week, the wrestling world lost two notable referees, Dave Hebner, the brother of Earl Hebner, and the legendary Tim White. Dave was well known, not only as Earl's brother, of course, but as the referee for Randy Savage versus Ricky Steamboat at WrestleMania 3 and Hulk Hogan versus Randy Savage at WrestleMania 5. He was also involved in the famous, infamous, whatever you want to call it, uh, Hogan-Andre the Giant angle with Ted DiBiase and his brother. He eventually worked for WWE as a road agent until 2005 and then with TNA until 2012 as he battled Parkinson's disease until his death. Not only was Tim White known as a referee, he was famously Andre the Giant's agent starting back in 1985. White became a full-time referee from 1993 until 2009 in WWE, and he was involved in a couple of, let's call them interesting on-screen angles, including a very controversial one involving suicide in 2006. Uh, One of the craziest things about White's career is that he actually injured his shoulder in a Hell in a Cell match between Triple H and Chris Jericho. And then two years later, he re-injured the same shoulder in another Chris Jericho match against Christian at WrestleMania 20. And unfortunately, that injury ended his in-ring career. Of course, he was also the referee for the famous Mankind Undertaker Hell in a Cell match. But during the entire Attitude Era, uh, White was the number two guy right there behind Earl Hebner. And he will long be known as a top tier referee and agent for wrestling. Uh, in the entire industry. So, you know, getting over, we just wanted to send our wishes uh, to both of their families. And it's always unfortunate to begin the show on a somber note, but both Dave and Tim, our thoughts are with you and your families. Hey, now. We are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. Data with the latest WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again, and we have an absolutely loaded show for you. It is not yet the Money in the Bank edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, but we are well on our way to that show going down, I believe, July 2nd in Las Vegas. Still just under two weeks to go until that premium live event, and there is plenty to discuss about what is going down on screen for WWE. Unfortunately, there is just as much to discuss about what's happening off the screen. Vintage Chris Vanini is here with the Silver King, and we are going to break all of that down for you in a moment, but it would not be an episode of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast if I did not begin it by reminding you that this show, as always, So please head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating for us on Apple. Also leave a review. Let people know how much you love this podcast. And as always, if you leave a five-star review, the Silver King is going to read it at the open of the show. Chris Franzes finally found you, exclamation point, five stars. Missed listening to wrestling podcasts since the CBS show ended. Tried a few others, then gave up decided to try again a few weeks ago, came across you by accident. Thank God I did. Reached back and listened to a bunch of old episodes. So happy. I am so happy, Chris, that you were able to find us and join us after all this time. Welcome to the Getting Over 
wrestling podcast. One more that came in from Israel back on June 6th. I missed it. I think the international ones take a little uh, long to populate. Chasing Gold 38, he wrote, Unmatched. Adam and Chris are professional sports journalists who lend an unmatched credibility to our favorite sports entertainment. Filled with excellent in-depth analysis on all aspects of the wrestling industry. This is the podcast for the truly smart fan. Adam, I have acknowledged you. Now it's time for you to acknowledge me. You're asking for acknowledgement in a review. I mean, you're getting it. Obviously, I'm reading it live on the show. Yes, I acknowledge you, Chasing Gold 38. And thank you for doing the right thing and acknowledging me and Chris and getting over as well. Chris, a couple pretty damn great reviews right there. Yeah, I, I know we kind of go through the motions with this at the beginning of every show, but honestly, it is great to hear that feedback, whether it's on, on the ratings, whether it's on Twitter and stuff like that. Uh, it's always just good to hear the feedback of people who are listening. So, uh, and, and we really do uh, greatly appreciate it. So thank you. We do, we do. And I, I do want to say something because there's been so much happening in wrestling. I, I want to say this month, but really this year that the DM slides, the, the questions that we've read on the show, it, it's it's gone down in number, right? Uh, it's not as much as it used to be. And th- that is not purposeful. We love the interaction with you guys. When I don't read things on the air, anyone who uh, DMs or, or tweets us, I try my best to answer questions or provide comments to your comments on Twitter. Uh, but the shows have been so jam-packed recently. Chris and I both have very busy schedules that adding, you know, six to eight DMs to every episode, it can really drag the show on because the questions are oftentimes very good, but a lot of times also they're repetitive of things that we're already discussing on the show. So please keep sending in your feedback, keep sending in your questions and comments. I promise you, I will do a better job reading some of them on the air, Um, but we just unfortunately can't get to them all, but I do appreciate it very much. Chris, look, um, it's, it's a busy week. It's been a whirlwind. We could do a, uh, an open here and, and talk about our favorite soda flavor or, you know, some other bullshit. But the truth is, there's so much for us to get to. I feel like we just slide into the main event. What about you? I think so. I think we got to get it right into it. There's no shortage of things. Again, talk about jam-packed episodes. We got a lot to talk about. We have a four-part segment coming up right now as we slide into the main event. <laughs> And Chris, we've done a lot of instant reaction shows as of late to news. This one felt like it could be a little bit delayed, and that is why we saved it to the main event of this show. And that is that Vince McMahon has stepped down as chairman and CEO of WWE during this ongoing investigation, with Stephanie McMahon returning from her sabbatical to step in as interim chairwoman and CEO. This all happened Friday morning, and really... It's just the latest update on the investigation that we already covered in depth on last Thursday's podcast. So if you want to hear our thoughts in totality on this investigation, go play the episode that begins with Vince McMahon investigation, and you'll have a a very uh, in-depth conversation on it. But Chris, in terms of this development, while Vince stepping down from this role is certainly notable, it doesn't really matter much in reality. Like it was clear in the release He's remaining in charge of creative. He decided to literally appear on SmackDown about 12 hours after this was released. And with Stephanie in that chair, you can bet your ass that Vince is basically wielding power from behind the scenes anyway. So this was probably done at the behest of the board as a public move, but there's not actually much to say about it other than the optics of this happening. 
Yeah, it, it, it was largely a PR move. You got a bunch of headlines as Vince McMahon steps down from CEOs and it typically wasn't in the headline. Maybe some of the stories had it, but oh, by the way, he's still running the show on a day on a daily basis. So I don't think much has really changed. I think him coming out on TV is a way of kind of saying that as well, which we'll get into. So, yeah, I think this has mostly been a, a PR move and, you know, maybe he's not involved in certain business discussions right now uh but at least for the most part i don't think all that much has changed yet agreed and, and particularly in terms of what we see on television nothing has changed i mean it's correct it's still vince it's his show he's the lead of creative he's the one that's there a couple other administrative notes uh before we move on here john laurinaitis has been placed on administrative leave from his role as head of talent relations and as a wise man once said i believe i had that uh, we predicted this on friday or on Thursday, I'm sorry. And Bruce Pritchard is now moving into that role as interim head of talent relations. Pritchard has experience doing this previously. I think he did it for TNA. But if memory serves, he hated it. Uh, so certainly, Laurinaitis being in that role was such a mind-boggling decision when Vince brought him back, like recently. And Pritchard, I have to imagine, is preferred backstage. But what WWE needs to do with these positions that are like surrounding the talent. They need to bring people into these roles who are not Vince McMahon's guys. And I know that's probably not going to happen as long as Vince is in charge, but they got to get some fresh blood backstage when it comes to talent relations and development and creative, obviously with Vince that you need other people. Like one of the great things about Vince Russo during the attitude era, and we don't talk about him a lot on this podcast, but he bucked the trend. Like you had Vince who wanted things a certain way and you had Bruce and Michael P.S. Hayes and other guys who were saying, yes, boss. They were they were the yes men and they, they kept giving them thumbs up and they'd take what he had and maybe would try to improve upon it. Vince Russo came in and was like, no, this isn't working for you. This, this, and this will. Now that did work for WWE when Vince listened to him for a certain period of time. Vince ultimately was still the final decision maker, but you have to have people that are able to be combative in some way with what you think is correct. And the biggest issue maybe with WWE right now is not just Vince being in charge of creative, but it's that everyone's surrounding him. There's no one there to really kind of kick him in the ass and, and try to push for better things. Maybe Paul Heyman could be considered that. And certainly when Paul had that role as executive director on Raw, we saw the Raw creative was drastically different from what was happening on SmackDown, but now that everything's back like under one bubble, and it has been for a couple of years now, it's just very blah, right? And and beyond that, Laura Knight is being in charge of the talent is not something the talent wanted. So the fact that he's out, despite all the craziness and then the swirling winds that are going on, I have to believe that's a bit of a positive given unf the unfortunate circumstances upon which it's occurring. Yeah, yeah, potentially. I, I mean, only only talent probably really know best. But another one of those people who was formerly in that role, who I think largely got lauded for it, was Jim Ross, who was not Absolutely. directly a, a not directly a Vince guy, was friendly with the boys, so to speak, and kind of understood them. And he always seemed like a straight shooter. And all the conversations people talk about Jr. in that role. So it, it, those are the kinds of, of people you want, just in all parts of this company. I mean, I mean, it's been talked about for years and decades at this point that, you know, 
basically after WCW went down, it was just Vince is the, the kind of the, the king doing whatever he wants all the time. And everybody just kind of had to get in line. So, you know, Laurinaitis leave of absence, not a surprise or administrative leave, not a surprise, you know, given what was out there. Um, and, you know, just kind of some more, you know, small updates and steps forward as things kind of work themselves out. That will almost assuredly become permanent. I see zero chance that he is right back into the fold. Just to clarify for anyone out there. So let's stay with Vince McMahon. Well, maybe not Vince McMahon, but Mr. McMahon. Uh, because Mr. McMahon indeed opened SmackDown as advertised on Friday. He got a big ovation from the crowd, which even did the No Chance in Hell chant sing-along. Uh, McMahon repeated the then now forever together mantra and welcomed the crowd to SmackDown. And that was it. And then on Raw, he came out completely unadvertised at 8.35 p.m. after the opening extended segment. And he thanked the fans for Raw being on the air for 30 years. Then he called John Cena the greatest WWE superstar of all time and reminded that he would be on the show next week. Then he dropped the mic and left. Uh, the SmackDown appearance was announced. The Raw one was not, which I thought was very interesting, given there was a clear ratings bump in that first quarter hour of SmackDown, people knowing Vince would be there. I don't know why they wouldn't do the exact same thing for USA Network and tease it that it was coming after the opening segment. But basically what this was is Vince just wanted to show face amid the controversy that's surrounding him. And he wanted to probably bask in the adulation of his fans as well. It was like a heat check is the best way I can describe it to like gauge the public sentiment on live television so that the board and investors could see that no matter what's happening here, everyone loves Mr. McMahon. Everyone loves Vince McMahon. There's no problems in the public eye. And that's very apparent based on the fact that WWE stock has not dropped at all since this thing started. This was very reminiscent, Chris, of what Vince's good buddy would do. Uh, it was like a live version almost of stand up for WWE, but for an individual as opposed to the collective of the company. Thankfully, that's all this was because I was worried he was going to go out there and like try to state a case for himself, you know, make some crazy comments or do something that was going to deflect from the investigation. And I saw people out there, uh, fans, a couple fans or reporters saying they were bothered by it. I saw reports that people backstage were bothered by it. And sure, I could imagine feeling the same way. Like, why is this guy injecting himself on the screen here? But as far as like, all-time disgusting promotional tactics or creative decisions that WWE has made. Like, and I saw people making comparisons and making those comments. This doesn't even come close to cracking the top 25. Like, it's more eye-rolling to me than it was disgusting. I found fault in it, but I didn't think it was anything that was shocking. I'm glad you mentioned stand-up for WWE, because I was was thinking about that and actually saw something about it a couple weeks ago when, when WWE had this campaign, when Linda was running for office in Connecticut or something like that, about yep. how WWE's past was kind of weighing on her campaign and stuff like that. Um, this is this is just tiny nothing compared to that. It's just Vince coming out to say hi. The first time, absolutely a ratings pop. Many things have been done in wrestling history for a rating pop. What what I'm what I'm trying to square here is I'm I'm of two minds on why Vince is doing this. Maybe even three. One could be to try to present 
a steadiness, a calmness Mm -hmm. within the company to the fans. Be like, hey, I'm still here. Like, it's not that big of a deal. Like, don't worry. Could also be a move of defiance toward the board to be like, hey, look how popular I am. Everybody loves me. This is still my company. I own the, you know, we own the controlling shares. There's that. And then there's a third part of me that wonders, does he think this could be the end? And he wants to go out there as frequently as he can and get those crowd cheers while he still can. It's probably the less of the three, but I, I, I've thought all these possibilities of, of things that are going on in his head. And actually, uh, uh, Brian Gerwitz, former lead writer, had a funny tweet about this last night. He said, he said, I'd be pitching Mr. McMahon coming out every week, making increasingly shorter and weirder announcements every week. <laughs> like, like a WWE shop sale or, or Curtis Axel wasn't eliminated from the 2015 Royal Rumble. Just like stuff like That's that. Funny. So it's, That's it's, funny. It's, it's very, it's very weird. I don't know what to make of it. Um, but I also don't think to this point, it's that big of a deal because he's, he's, he's no. not doing anything. Right now. Yeah, I think it's, it's odd and it's worth rolling your eyes over, but that's it. It just it, it was a waste of time is really what it was. That's well, it. He came he came out to announce Cena, even though they'd already run the Cena announcement, you know, ad right. during the show. And and to say, hey, guess was, what? Raw is popular, which we already knew. And then on SmackDown, he's just reading the, the slogan of, of the the intro. Yeah. I mean, I was I was kind of surprised he did the Cena mention and hyped up Cena because I was curious, like, you know, with this drama going around the company, how will partners, celebrities, etc., want to be associated with WWE at this exact moment? Cena's obviously making the return, but now he's directly tied into a Vince segment. I was and surprised in terms of his, that. Yeah. In terms of his personal brand and everything like that, I, I'm kind of surprised that uh, they they went with that. Maybe maybe Cena was fine with it. Maybe he's not. I don't know. But but that that did stuck out to be like, hey, you're, you're a big guy. You're a big make a wish guy. I'm going to mention him while everybody's kind of investigating me right now. I'm just going to throw his name out there and kind of tie him into this mess. You know, I didn't have this really on our docket here, but real quick. Is John Cena the greatest WWE superstar of all time? You know, this is funny because I was driving around this morning dropping dogs off at a, at a groomer and I was actually listening to Busted Open Radio and they asked the exact same question. Oh, really? And okay. yeah, and it's it's. There, there is a case to be made. He's not on my personal Mount Rushmore. But when you consider 16-time world champion, when you consider the most make-a-wishes that have ever been done, when you consider the sheer number of WrestleMania main events and the longevity, that's what makes him stand out from a rocker and awesome like that. This yeah. dude's been here forever doing this. There is a case to be made. <laughs> He's not my personal number one, but from the company's perspective, from Vince's perspective, what John meant to that company, taking it to record revenues, profits, international, all that stuff. You can make a case. Personally, I think the most valuable wrestler to the company ever was Hulk Hogan, but Cena's got a case. I think there's a differential between wrestler and superstar, right? And if you were creating a Mount Rushmore of WWE superstars, TM, right? I think it's Hulk Hogan, Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Rock, and John Cena. I think those are your four. And people would say, well, Silver King, you're completely forgetting about The Undertaker. I'm not. Because despite despite the fact that The Undertaker is an all-time great and 
a tremendous wrestler, he never crossed over. And if he did, it was minor. The four people I just mentioned were legitimate crossover stars. And I do think that there is a case to be made that purely because of longevity, which allowed for the 16 world championships and being a public face for such a long period of time that he did set the record for Make-A-Wishes. Although I think at this point, it's going to be one of those records like Joe DiMaggio 61, where like, it's just never going to get broken because he's he's so far above the next person at this point. He keeps adding to his total with Make-A-Wishes. Uh, and I do think it's now interesting that after a very slow sputtering start, Cena has crossed over to Hollywood. And he is getting some major roles. Now, he's not in major roles like The Rock. He's not the number one Hollywood star box office draw. But The Rock, when you look at his time in WWE, how about I tell you this? AJ Styles has been in WWE longer than The Rock as a full-time wrestler. Yeah. yeah. Okay? So People don't realize The Rock's run was short. Austin's run on top was like three years that was it. I mean, they they that was they were maybe the most impactful superstars of all time in terms of taking the company taking wrestling to a, a pop culture spot it had never been before, and their legacy still lasts twenty years later. But it was a very very short period of time. True. So while I don't know that he is, he's certainly not my favorite WWE superstar of all time, and that's no offense to John. I do think specifically that phrase, greatest. WWE superstar of all time, I think there is a very strong case that he indeed is that person. So I I think in terms of WWE superstar, just kind of what they did for the company, I think it's I think it's Hulk Hogan in terms of what they meant to the company. Who do you who do you think it is? Well, Hulk Hogan meant more to WWE because WWE, you can make an argument, would not exist today without right. That's what right. Right. Um, and then you could make an argument that WWE would not exist today without Stone Cold Steve Austin. Because he yeah. and The Rock and the entire Attitude Era saved them from, I don't want to say necessarily the brink of bankruptcy, but there's a chance they lost. There was a very good chance before that all happened that they were going to lose the war to WCW. Mm-hmm. And if they did, I don't know that there would have been room for a smaller WWE recuperating, you know what I mean? Like rebuilding right. themselves. So, I think I think they would have got bought out if that happened. So I think Hogan and Austin slash Rock. You got to pick one. No, no, no. no. What I'm, this is what I'm explaining to you. I think those two are far more important to WWE's success and longevity. I don't even remember what your question was. But John Cena is the greatest. You, well, you John Cena is the greatest. John Cena is the sure. greatest, but I think I think Hulk Hogan is the most important. Sure, because it doesn't happen without him. Yeah, that's. Right. I think that's the distinction to make. And and I yeah. so let me let me make it let me let me do it this way. Okay, Hulk Hogan is the most important. Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock were the best. B e s t. What I believe to be the best. John Cena is the greatest. Yeah, and I think you define those. Di- I think you define those three categories differently. Yeah, I, I look at the same thing with, with like quarterbacks and stuff. So that's fair. Who's the greatest quarterback of all time? It's, it's Tom Brady, but I don't think he's the best. I think he's the greatest, but not the best. Agreed. Exactly. He, that, that, exactly. He has, the, he has the achievements and the longevity, just like John Cena, but he's not the best at that position. Not even close, actually, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. All right, good. We're on the same page there. So that was the extended first part of the main event. Let's move to the second part. We had 
an undisputed WWE Universal Championship defense with Roman Reigns appearing on television against Riddle. Can you, Chris, believe that? You know, my first thought seeing him was like, man, I miss this guy. I missed him. Like, he's great. This, like, we've, we've fallen in love with this character over the last two years or so. And it'd been a while since we'd seen him in this spot. He hadn't wrestled in a match like this since Mania. And so um, I was like, oh, man, like, I'm excited about this. Like, he feels like a big deal. I, I missed him. That was my first reaction to seeing it. I'm happy. I'm pumped is what I am. So that was you. Uh, me, you guys know, you've, you've, you've heard me on the podcast. I, I saw him and I was just like, you know what? Honestly, my thought was, where the F have you been? And yeah. and I'm not saying that Reigns needs to be there every week because he is he has moved into a different phase of his career and a different role in WWE. But again, and I, I, I'm really trying not to be repetitive. The fact that he wasn't on Raw for six weeks and, and probably won't be ever again at this rate and uh, wasn't on SmackDown for four weeks and had not defended the title 75 days after initially winning it and that title defense was coming on a random SmackDown as opposed to at Money in the Bank, which makes more sense now, given we know what happened, but nevertheless on a random SmackDown against Riddle in the main event as opposed to the main event of a premium live event. All of those things did continue to irk me as SmackDown began. And it didn't help that we didn't see Roman Reigns at all until he came out for his main event match. There were no yes. previews, nothing in the locker room, nothing backstage. We just didn't see him until he made his entrance. Now It's the same thing I always say with Brock, which is when you have him, use him. The best, I, one of the best Brock appearances we've had in years was when he was backstage reading that hunting magazine or fishing magazine, whatever it mm -hmm. was, and they kept cutting back and forth to him. Remember? And then he appeared in front of the crowd yeah. one time in that show. Same thing with Reigns. Yeah. And, and Cena too. It's like, if you've got them in the building, like use them as much as you can. Right. Have them interact with people backstage, then have them come out, have there be an interaction after they come out. It doesn't make any sense to just do a, like a one and done appearance, which is basically what this was. But anyway, let's get to what happened on SmackDown. So Riddle opened the show. He said he's been waiting a long time for this opportunity. He knows his family, friends, and Randy Orton are watching. The crowd chanted for Randy. Riddle seemed to confirm that Orton has an operation upcoming. We will cover that and Randy Orton in the third part of this main event. And he thanked the fans on behalf of Orton. Orton got another chant. Riddle dedicated the match to Orton and played Randy's theme. And that was it. Uh, Riddle, look, he's had key moments on the mic recently. They've done a really good job getting him over both in the ring and on the mic. But... This just came off exceptionally strange to me as a promo. One shout out and a dedication to Orton would have been fine. But like 85% of this very long promo was about Randy. Meanwhile, the guy is the first undisputed title challenger. It's a career moment. He barely mentioned Reigns, which is what the promo should have been about. The crowd loves Riddle. The crowd loves Orton. So no harm. But I would have liked them to really rally around him as he made a passionate case for why he wanted the championship so bad. And that wasn't the focus of the promo. The focus of the promo was Randy Orton, 
who, if he is about to have surgery, is going to be out for an indefinite period of time. Meanwhile, Riddle's the guy who is still there. Yeah, this was uh, not great. Um, for for one, I don't think Riddle is... It, it, part of it's him, part of it's not. I, I don't think he is getting across the seriousness of the Randy situation, so to speak. Like, people are still waiting for him to crack jokes and say funny things. And when he's trying to deliver a kind of somber thing, people aren't quite feeling it. And then the writing was bad. Because, like you said, the whole thing's about Randy. He's got a shirt that says Randy. Like, like no, this, is, this has to be Riddle's moment. This has to be when Riddle takes the step away from Randy, especially if he's going to be out. This is the moment. The championship match that he's in. This is the moment when you elevate him as someone who's not just Randy's friend. Being Randy's friend got him to this point. This is supposed to be the moment where you step out from that. And they didn't do it. Exactly. Uh, So a little bit later, Sami Zayn was pacing outside Reigns' locker room and tried to convince himself that everything was fine with him and the bloodline. And there was no follow-up. Like I said, we never saw Reigns or the Usos. I don't think we saw Paul Heyman, and this is all we got from Sami Zayn before the main event. And one other reminder, I said it already, this was Reigns' first appearance on TV in over a month, and his first defense of the title, 75 days after unifying it. I'm going to give WWE credit going into this match. They did a good job making it seem like one of the biggest main events in SmackDown history, not just in the open, but throughout the show. They really built up the main event's importance and gave it plenty of time. But it just felt like the lack of build to it was a disappointment that, you know, Riddle, like, like Riddle's so impassioned and needs to topple the bloodline and get revenge for Randy Orton. And by the way, Shinsuke Nakamura, why not have him backstage with other people, Ricochet, the other baby faces coming up to him? Hey, man, you got this. We believe in you. Take down the tribal chief. You know, Drew McIntyre dapping him up. Hey, man, go handle business. I'll see you at Clash at the Castle. Why not build this guy up and say, this is someone we believe in as a main eventer. You guys, the crowd, obviously love him. But not only that, he has the respect of the boys in the back and he has a legitimate shot to actually beat Roman Reigns, something that has not been done in over two years. Correct. I I, I, I see. I kind of disagree that they made it feel like a big deal on the show. I, I think they could have done the stuff. They made it feel important. Them. They didn't make it feel like a big deal. I want to differentiate between the two. Oh, okay. And they then, made the I, title again, match feel important. They didn't make the moment and riddle as a challenger feel like a big deal. Yes, that that I agree with. And it, part of it, you could have done more stuff around Riddle. You could have done the Roman stuff that we said that they, they didn't do. Um, it, it, it Like, we know Riddle wasn't going to win, but they didn't really put, they didn't give us a reason to kayfabe think that he might, really. And I, I think that, I think that was, I think that's part of it in terms of, again, trying to elevate Riddle to a spot where he feels like he could be the top guy. It, it, it didn't come across like that. Leading into the match. So speaking of the match, let's get into what happened in the ring. Riddle attacked at the bell. He had a springboard floating bro outside, and we went to commercial after two minutes, which I just shook my head. Duh. Riddle went on a run with an exploder suplex, but Reigns blocked the broton with knees. Riddle hit a floating bro for a 2.8. Reigns caught him, 
with a Uranagi for a 2.8. Reigns dropped Riddle on the announce table like Orton would and broke the fourth wall by looking into the camera and taunting Randy Orton. Riddle countered a Superman punch with a knee and hit Orton's power slam, but Reigns escaped the draping DDT. Riddle dumped Reigns on the announce table in kind before uh, Randy Champ broke out with the crowd. Riddle caught Reigns coming back in with the draping DDT, but Reigns blocked the RKO and hit a Superman punch for a great 2.9. Reigns set up for a spear, but Riddle countered him mid-leap with an RKO for a 2.99 false finish that I would rank among the top three or four false finishes that we've had with Reigns as champion. It was perfect. Yeah. Uh, Riddle then hit Floating Bro, but Reigns blocked the next RKO and caught Riddle springboarding midair off the ropes with a spear to retain the title in 17 minutes. So we're going to break down the match first, and then we'll talk about everything else. The wrestling was great, okay? Uh, but the commercials, they hurt the flow as they always do when it's a TV main event. Riddle's constant selling and emoting in this match was top tier the whole time. But man, was I disappointed this only got 17 minutes of TV time. This easily could have gone like 25 minutes. There was so much more that these two could have done together. If they were rematching this at SummerSlam, I would have been totally fine with what we got here. But for a one-off that we've been anticipating for a very long time, it did feel a bit formulaic at times. There was a ton of story involved. I appreciated it. And they told that story throughout the match and the false finishes were superb. I am struggling on a number grade. It is an A match. I'm back and forth between 4.5 and 4.25. I'm going to start with 4.25. I may rewatch it and change, but it was an A match, exceptionally entertaining and a really good main event that delivered, I would say, 90% of my expectation between these two. I, I think it was an A match. 4.25 is where I was as well. I thought it surpassed my expectations for the opposite reason of you, which is that 17 minutes on a SmackDown is pretty good. Like, I would have loved 20 minutes more than that, but, like, given the situation, I was not... I was expecting 10 minutes at most, maybe. Oh, really? The ring oh, the, no, I knew the, they wouldn't do... I mean, I, I, I was been... I was thinking the bell rings at... At, at, at 10 minutes to the end of the show and we get a little bit, it wasn't much. So my expectations were low going into that for that. So gotcha. to get 17 minutes, to get some incredible false finishes, it surpassed my expectations because of that. I thought this match was awesome. I thought this is a match where like, this is something you want to run back at a major pay-per-view, I think sometime in the not too distant future and people will be into it. Uh, so um, I, I love this match. I, I love this. And it was again, another reminder to me of just like, that I miss Roman Reigns. Like, like dude, dude wants a, a, a less, lesser schedule. Feel free. But like, this was, this was why we loved him for a year and a half in his role. Cause he delivers in these big matches. And he did here. I just, as always wish we get more of it, but uh, overall for what it was on, on a SmackDown, um, I, I loved it. I, I thought it was great. So in terms of expectations, I want to set the level. My expectation was the Roman Reigns-Daniel Bryan match, the fi Daniel Bryan's final match in WWE. I wasn't expecting it to be that good, nor was I expecting it to be exactly that long, but that match went 27 minutes. It was... That all, but that, that was also during the Thunderdome era, though, when... There were fans were in front of that, weren't matches. there? Oh, no, it was Thunderdome. No, that was, You're right, it was, it Thunderdome. was Thunderdome. So You're right. it was a it different was. it was a different time, and it's Daniel Bryan who had won WrestleMania main events before, but... 
But again, I wasn't necessarily expecting 27 minutes, but I was expecting to feel the same way about the match. I thought it would go 20, 22. It would be one of those really strong title defenses for Reigns where he, I mean, and look, and they got false finishes in there. It just felt, it, it felt like a TV main event as opposed to a premium main event on TV. I thought it was going to be a premium main event on TV, given the fact that supposedly, and I believe this to be true, it was originally booked for money in the bank. And Riddle, you know, Roman Reigns keeps going out there and saying, I've beaten everyone. I've, he hadn't beaten Riddle. And and Riddle is, you know, they put a stipulation onto the match so that Riddle couldn't go back on SmackDown, which apparently now also means he can't challenge for the title again, which isn't the same thing because Reigns is the That's champion of said. both. Because Reigns is the champion of both shows and it's so infuriating that he just only appears on SmackDown and they treat it as if you have to show up on SmackDown in order to challenge Roman Reigns. But that's another point for another day. Um, so because of all of those things, the added stipulation, all that, I thought it was going to be a pay-per-view main event on TV. And it wasn't that. So I want to, that was the level set. That was the, the differentiation between my expectations going in and perhaps yours going in. This was a very good, maybe great TV main event, but it didn't feel like that next level, which I thought it would. I mean, it, it was five minutes longer than the WrestleMania main event. You know that he last defended the title. It's a twelve-minute match. But with Lesnar, Brock Lesnar. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm not. Minutes. I'm not comparing it to Lesnar. Compare it to Edge and. Uh, right. Compare it saying, to the Edge and Daniel Bryan time. Tell me how long it, that was. It, you know. It it was it it was um, it, it's just kind of the way WWE has done things. You know, I this type of seventeen minutes for a TV main event is in this day and age with the way they do things. Enough for me. So I, I, I loved it. Thought it was great. I think the stipulation is incredibly stupid, just like you said. And so we did it as a one-off on SmackDown instead of doing it in freaking Las Vegas. So sure, I don't get it. All right. So there are seven minutes left in the broadcast after this match ended, which signals to anyone who looks at a clock or has a clock in their you know viewing <laughs> angle of the TV, something else is coming. Reigns in the bloodline celebrated while Riddle was sitting there really sad at ringside. Reigns said there is no one left. And by the way, there are plenty of people left. Like he keeps stating this, but there are so many freaking wrestlers who he hasn't fought, namely on Raw, that he can go after, go, go against, I should say. But he reminded that two years ago, he promised to wreck everyone and leave. And he said, that's what I'm going to do now. Then he did the acknowledge me shit and he was ready to leave, just like he said, when Brock Lesnar's music hit. Reigns told the Usos to leave the ring and he threw his arms in the air, just as I did at home. Uh, they did a face-to-face. -face. Lesnar laughed, removed his hat, pounded his chest, and offered a handshake. And Reigns, this genius heel, went for the handshake, I guess, when Lesnar grabbed him, hit an F5, killed both the Usos with F5s, and ended the show standing on top of them. WWE then announced, not at the end of the show, but moments later on social media, that it will indeed be Reigns versus Lesnar at SummerSlam. And get this, it's going to be a last man standing match. As if they didn't want to just stab me in the chest, they wanted to put the knife entirely through my body. Let me make this perfectly clear, Chris. I don't give a fuck if this was a break glass in case of emergency move 
because of Randy Orton. The inability for WWE to do anything other than Reigns versus Lesnar is simply infuriating. If you told me this was going to happen, I would have rolled my eyes and laughed, saying to you, there is no way they can run this back so soon after we seem to actually reach finality in the feud in the biggest WrestleMania match of all time, winner take all, blah, blah, blah. And yet, here we are, Reigns and Lesnar, again, for a championship, again, in the main event of a major show, again, Reigns and Lesnar, for the ninth time ever, and third time in the last 10 months, again, did they forget that this shit completely bombed at WrestleMania? And yes, before you or anyone else, because I tweeted this as well, I'm staving it off here. I saw the YouTube views, 4.2 million in 72 hours, maybe above 5 million at the time of us taping this. Yes, I understand WWE has tickets to sell for a major stadium show. And without Orton, the only name maybe besides Lesnar that they could probably have worked into this as someone who generates ticket sales would be Rey Mysterio, who is nowhere near the title picture. I don't care. This is the definition of creative bankruptcy. Riddle is your top healthy baby face by a mile right now. Why not just do a bullshit finish and rematch Reigns and Riddle with a huge stipulation at SummerSlam? You saw the crowd on Friday. You see the crowd every time RK Bro or Riddle is out there either cutting a promo or wrestling. They love him. This is your guy. Cody is out. Randy is out. You have Riddle. Why not, if you don't want to do that, put Reigns in a fatal four-way where you can allow the collective star power of the other three people match him? It would create a scenario where you say, wow, you know what? Reigns losing the title here looks far more probable against AJ Styles and Bobby Lashley and Drew McIntyre, Riddle, Shinsuke Nakamura, Finn Balor. I can keep going. They have stars that can sell a main event, that can sell a main event for a stadium show. If not alone, then absolutely together. Why am I able to come up with a couple better ideas off the dome here than WWE? Again, this is creative bankruptcy and it is a total indication of WWE's continued booking problems. Not just because they just pull the lever and bring Lesnar back, but because there is a lack of what they feel and probably in reality is true, ready-made challengers to step up into a position like this. You look at AEW, someone goes down, boom, John Moxley, boom, Brian Danielson. These people are ready to go. WWE, they have a couple. They refuse to use them. They refuse to build them up when they're not immediately in the title picture. And this is the result. Brock Lesnar, Roman Reigns for the ninth time and the third time in the last 10 months. To be fair, we're not in love with the way AEW has handled their open championship picture either. Not at all. They've done a terrible job. Better than that. I don't even know if it's better than this. It's pretty bad. It's not not great. So so the match ends and you you, you see the clock. You're like, all right, someone's coming out. And I'm just thinking, just not Brock. Just not Brock. It could be anybody. It could be Cena. It could be just just not Brock. And then it's Brock. And you're like, oh, okay. And look, <laughs> the video, the YouTube video, 
4.4 million. Brock just Brock is still a draw. He is. I I I get it. I don't agree with it. I agree with most of what you said there in terms of their inability to develop enough other male superstars and put them in these spots. But for SummerSlam, considering, you know, they had to back out of the stadium show for for Money in the Bank, I understand why Brock is the break glass in case of emergency guy. So I get it. I'm not looking forward to this at all. I'm honestly looking forward to not having Roman on my TV for the next six weeks because then we don't have to talk about Brock versus Roman again. Um, but look, look, who who else does he fight here? I don't think Riddle's the, the guy for a stadium show main event. I think you, you could have done something like Rollins. I think um, I you already do McIntyre for Clash of the Castle. Why not do a fatal four-way with Riddle, Styles, and Balor? Styles was a guy who who definitely could be in that. Styles on his own, maybe. Yeah, yeah, Styles on his own or that fatal four-way. It's it's better. I I don't know what the ticket sales look like for SummerSlam right now. Um, I don't know if they're any better or worse with or without Brock. But I understand why they're doing it. I don't love it. I'm not looking forward to it. And it sucks. You know, it, it's a tough spot with the injuries, with everything else that's been going on and a lot of plans being thrown through the window. And I understand why Brock's a draw, but I just, uh, I'm just groaning thinking about this and I'm not looking forward to it for the next six, seven weeks or whatever it is. Again, we're, our head is not in the sand. Like I understand the reasoning and there are circumstances in which doing this is okay. For example, what they had to do when Sasha Banks was unable to compete at SummerSlam last year, and they said, you know what? We weren't planning to bring Becky back, but we're going to do this. We're pulling the lever. People hated, myself included, I think yourself included, the immediate title change, but they had a plan. They played it out over you know six, seven months, however long it was between then and WrestleMania, and they gave us a really damn good long-term storyline with them that resulted in Bianca Belair getting over. There was reason and purpose and thought behind that. This is the opposite. This is lazy. And that's my problem with it. It's eye rolling. It's mind numbing. We've seen it. It doesn't work. They've had stipulation matches already. Well, wait, wait, to, to be fair, when you say it doesn't work, what do you mean by that? Like, it's just, it's not a good match? That we yeah, know, the wrestling is, it's not entertaining. It's but dull. that's not what that's not what they're looking for. They're I know they want to sell tickets and get and get yeah. people to subscribe to Peacock. And I understand again, I understand. But as someone who watches the product, someone who watches five hours of main roster television and three to four and a half hours of premium live events every single month, it is not interesting to me to see this again. Mm-hmm. And, and, and think about what it says. It's, it's about and, and, the and what you're about to say. What does it say about the rest of the roster? That and what does yes. it say about WWE creative? That was the main point I was making. It says yes. that creative is bankrupt, and that they have done a horrendous job. And we know this, and we say it all the freaking time. If you are not immediately in the title picture, they just do not give a shit about building you up. Who is being built up right now? You have Seth Rollins, who always should be built up. But even this guy has lost. And when's the last time Seth Rollins has won a feud, let alone a major match? 
He hasn't, right? So Rollins, they just have lose all the time to get other people over, but he's so freaking good that he's still their number two guy in the company. They were building up Orton to their credit. They were building up Riddle. But guess what? Orton, what is he, a 14, 13-time world champion on his own? You don't really need to build him up. Riddle, they built him up. They gave away his match on TV. And then we're going to talk about what happened to him Monday night. So why? what about AJ Styles? We haven't seen Finn Balor since the Judgment Day thing happened. Edge certainly is someone who can always be there. He's off TV selling an injury angle. Rey Mysterio is probably right now at the lowest point of his entire career. Um, you know, there's other people too that just aren't anywhere. They're they're in the mid card, upper mid card. Kevin Owens is stuck in this Ezekiel feud forever. These are all people who could step up into a main event spot if needed, and they're not ready because WWE hasn't booked them well. No, and and that that's where AEW does do it well, which is what you said earlier, which was that. You feel like everybody matters in some way. And WWE makes you feel like if you're not in that main event, you largely don't matter. You're there for entertainment. You're not there for for winning. And I was going to I forgot what I was going to say before, but but it's it's you think about what your your main event of the SummerSlam, you want to get people on Peacock, you want to get people who check out wrestling a couple times a year and you main event it with essentially Two part-timers who aren't going to be there every single week when you want to turn on the show. This has been the problem for a decade now in that they lean on part-timers who aren't there week to week. And it just it, you're not growing when you're doing that. And now because of the situation they're in, they're doubling down and going on with essentially two part-timers to main event your second biggest show of the year. That doesn't grow the company. It's such it's it's very, very short-term thinking. Now, Chris, not only does this booking hurt my soul, they gave it the singular stipulation that you know, and I say it on this podcast all the time, that I hate the most. The one stipulation where the finish doesn't reach a climax in a match, it's literally just a 10 count. Now, I will admit this, okay? Reigns has put on a couple great last man standing matches in his career, including the one with Kevin Owens, which was his most recent one, Yes, they had the handcuff snafu at the end. It was a great match until that happened. Yeah. And I will also admit that if you're going to do Reigns-Lesnar, a stipulation was needed for this match. However, the stipulation really should be last man standing, last time ever. If they had told us that at least for the remainder of his championship reign, we would not get Reigns and Lesnar again, I would have bought into it a lot more in the moment. I would have said, you know what? I hate it. I understand it, as we've already mentioned, but at least they are promising finality and they are not doing it. So what I have to believe, Chris, is that this last man standing stipulation was done either to excuse a Reigns win over Lesnar or for another reason that I have a feeling we're going to talk about in a moment. Uh, okay, I'm not sure what that other reason is, but th- this stipulation is almost always terrible for the reasons you said. It's my least favorite as well. Is should this should this have the tagline of the of the biggest match, the biggest SummerSlam match in history? Since it was the biggest WrestleMania match, it's in not history? a winner I mean, take all. I mean, I guess it is technically is a winner take all match. It is. But it's not a it's, merging it's, it's, of it's, titles, so it's not. Know. But it's the same match with the same stakes, so to I speak. Know. 
Um, if I'm just thinking if, if, they, if they got to hype up SummerSlam because they got to get people interested, like you said, last time ever would have been one way to do it. Calling it the biggest SummerSlam match ever. Like we, I, we, I rolled into the back of our heads about how many times they called this the biggest WrestleMania match of all time. Um, I'm curious. I'm curious how they're going to pitch it for SummerSlam. Uh, yeah. So let's move on to what I'm getting to here. But before we do, we need to discuss the follow-up with Riddle on Raw. We had Riddle versus Omas in a Money in the Bank qualifier. Before the match, Riddle recounted his loss to Reigns. He said he let himself, the fans, and Randy Orton down. He said he's down but not out, and Reigns will have to kill him to stop him. He said he may not be able to challenge Reigns one-on-one, but he can win Money in the Bank and end Roman's reign of terror, which, by the way, I really liked that phraseology right there. He also mm-hmm. called out Seth Rollins for what he did to Cody Rhodes. MVP came out and said Riddle was so divorced from reality, he must be hanging out with Snoop Dogg or Wiz Khalifa. MVP promised, you will get high tonight when Omas slams you in, down into reality. Riddle said he'll get high when he puts his hand in the air after beating Omas with the RKO. And whoa, I'm really high. I do have to say, I was surprised they went there so blatantly with the weed stuff. Like, it doesn't bother me at all, but it's a PG show. And they're just kind of like, hey, this guy smokes a lot of weed. They they totally lean into it more than ever before. There was a report that they don't even test for marijuana anymore. So which on, good on this noted, you know, yeah. So on this on that specific thing, WWE is shockingly, I think, incredibly progressive on this issue, even more than pro sports leagues. That is true. I think that is a fair point. So Rollins watched this match backstage. Omas dominated early. Riddle hit a pump knee while in his arms, then hit a floating bro that didn't even knock Omas down. Omas caught him trying the RKO and hit a double choke slam for the one, two, three in, I don't know, a couple of minutes, I guess. Then he did it again, the double choke slam. So just to clarify, okay, the way WWE books its top healthy babyface coming out of a career match against Roman Reigns is to have him get handled by Omas three nights later. No, he was not buried, okay? I saw people, oh, Riddle was buried. He was not buried, but he was handled by this guy while selling a rib injury. All so that they can put Omas, Omas, with absolutely nothing that makes him an attractive entrant in a ladder match. So they can put Omas in Money in the Bank. Riddle's promo was fine. But I have to say, the decision-making here, allowing Omos to beat him that handily, especially a guy that took Roman Reigns to the limit. Are you trying to suggest that Omos could beat Roman Reigns for the title, given he just threw Riddle to the side? The booking of this was absolutely, positively pathetic. Zero point zero. Zero point zero, Mr. Blutarski. Riddle's not buried. I I think they are. It seems to me that they are clearly setting something up for him, potentially with Rollins, Seth versus yeah, Seth versus Riddle, absolutely at SummerSlam. That's where it seems to be going. So we may end up. We'll 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 get there. But if anything, if that's where you want to get. You would think you would want the two of them in the money in the bank together. Exactly. To to set that feud 
forward. They do things to each other. They cost each other. Something like that. What the hell is Riddle going to do for Money in the Bank now? Like, like what, what, what case does he have for anything? He lost a title match. He lost a qualifying match. Like, th- this is this is where I think you y- you start to overthink it yourself when you're trying to plan out a Riddle versus Rollins story instead of just hey, let's have these two awesome guys be awesome, and then people will want to see that even more. Like, it's it, it's incredibly lame booking. Omas in a Money in the Bank match. There's already several big guys in there. You've got Sheamus and Drew McIntyre in there. You got Omos in there. This is this is a this is a hall. The meatiest ladder match ever. Yeah, it's it's gonna be the meatiest ladder match of all time. I don't get it. Uh, So yeah, this was, I think, um, completely unnecessary and strange. Everything you said, you absolutely nailed it on the head. Even if you wanted Omos in the match, this is not the person you have him beat. But more than that, beyond that, Riddle needs to be in this match. Why would you take him and seemingly now keep him out of Money in the Bank? Is there a potential that he gets in with a last chance qualifier on the go-home show? Maybe. Maybe he does. So maybe Why he's in does he match. deserve it? He doesn't, he doesn't deserve to be in another qualifying match. Well, they do the last chance qualifier historically, where everyone who loses the qualifying matches has like a triple threat, a, a fatal four-way, and uh, one person wins that and gets in. So if he does that, then that's okay. But why are you having him lose to Omas at all? It's just completely unnecessary for that to happen. And if you were going to do it based on selling the ribs, they didn't sell the ribs enough. They didn't talk about it enough. They didn't point it out enough as a reason why he lost. They just had Omas come in and beat this guy who just lost to Roman Reigns. To beat him twice when the guy doesn't lose, it you're not doing a downward spiral angle, I assume, unless they are. Unless Riddle's just going to lose everything without Randy and then Randy comes back and rejuvenates him. I don't think they're doing that, but anyway. So this ends. And if this is not enough, if Riddle losing to Omos and Omos being in a match he shouldn't be in is not enough, Rollins attacks Riddle immediately after the bell and called him the ultimate loser for losing Orton, the title match, and the Money in the Bank opportunity. Rollins then claimed he's the only man who has Reigns' number, and Roman has been dodging him since the Royal Rumble. He said if fans thought his first Money in the Bank cash-in was something, they ain't seen nothing yet. Riddle then attacked him back, only for Rollins to easily take him out with the stomp. So not only did they have Riddle lose to Reigns and lose to Omas, they had him beaten down twice by Rollins in like two minutes, and a stomp at the end making him look even more pathetic. Now again, maybe the goal is to break him down to build him up. I don't know why. He's not in the money in the bank unless he wins that second chance qualifier, if they even do one. Does he even deserve that? As of right now, no, to your point. Rollins was great here. I loved that he mentioned Reigns finally after all this time. But this booking, it hurt me deep down in my soul. It just was completely unnecessary to do this. Correct. There's nothing really else more to say other than that's the spot that makes you feel like they're building to riddle Rollins at SummerSlam. But... You know, there are more productive ways to to do it like like they're they're not they're, it's not a downward spiral angle because they never fully commit to those, which we'll get to with Becky Lynch. And, it, it, and so it's just a guy just loses a bit and then he's back and then then you just you get behind him again. This is kind of how they there's never that much thought and depth put into these types of things. So, I mean, do they want him to go on like a multi-match losing streak? That way he and Rollins both haven't won in two months and then they fight each other at SummerSlam to see who's the biggest loser. Like, what's the point? Like it doesn't, it's absolutely crazy. So look, 
I don't think, Chris, it's any stretch to say that Rollins should probably be the favorite going into Money in the Bank, especially when you look at who else is in the match right now. McIntyre is not winning, Sheamus is not winning, and Omas is not winning. So if it's going to be someone other than Rollins, it's someone that's not qualified yet. And if Rollins does win, it would create an extremely strong chance that they actually run back the heist of the century at SummerSlam, given the last man standing stipulation. This is what I was talking about earlier. Uh, That would create an opening for Reigns to take what I would consider to be an excused loss. Now, if they do this, and I have to preface it, we have to talk about it now, and we'll talk about it on the Ultimate Preview also. But if they do it, that would massively diminish the incredible all-time moment at WrestleMania 31 by basically trying to replicate it. I mean, they literally mentioned it on Raw, almost as if they want us to know it's going to happen, and they don't want us to be surprised. Now, they could also do it with the cash and failing and Reigns and Lesnar being ready for it this time because it happened to them once before. That would throw money in the bank in the garbage after four weeks, which again would waste a great tool that WWE has been wasting recently rather than allowing it to build excitement over a period of time. That would be super depressing. I would hate to see that happen. And I would hate to see some cop out where Rollins cashes in and wins a title without pinning Reigns. That would be awful given Reigns' dominance over two years not leading to that one, as uh, Andy Bernard would say, delicious moment where the babyface finally conquers Reigns. There would obviously be a pop in the arena, and Rollins winning the title again is something that I desperately want. But as I evaluate the situation of Rollins winning Money in the Bank, what it means with the last man standing stipulation, it just comes across to me like this is going to be a lose-lose-lose scenario no matter how it is booked. Am I wrong about that? Or do you see some some shining light in here that I'm missing. If if the title got back onto somebody's on the show every week, I like that. But then what was the point of the entire Roman Reigns run? Like, like if that's how you're going to end it with a cash in where maybe he doesn't even get pinned and you're just redoing WrestleMania 31, like, I, as as frustrated as I am with the lack of Roman right now and as, as not interested as I am in Roman versus Brock, I don't want to give up the long-term reign story just to do that. I think it's, I think it's possible. You, you laid out the reasons why it could, why they've hinted at possibly doing it. But man, you think about all the work they put in, all the hype, all the greatest, biggest WrestleMania match of all time, unifying the titles, all for all for a cash in like I, I we talk about short sighted booking decisions all the time. If they if they if they blow this on that, that 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 that's up there as much as any they've ever done. Completely agree. I mean, if it is a situation where the money in the bank cash in is only for one of the titles because the contract states that you can cash in for any title singular at any time and Rollins takes the WWE championship, but Reigns remains universal champion. And there still is the possibility for that moment, whether it's Cody Rhodes, whether it's someone else to topple him and get that rub and and have that moment, then I would be okay with it. I wouldn't necessarily call that short-sighted, but it just seems like having him take his first loss in years this way or that way, I should say, um, whether it's because 
Rollins cashes in and they're both counted out to 10 and he's just standing there. So he happens to win the title or if he pins Lesnar. So Reigns loses the title without even taking a fall or he pins Reigns after he's been gotten the shit kicked out of him by Brock. No matter what happens, I don't see a scenario in which it's a positive other than the fact that it would be taking a title off Reigns. That one you just laid out where he, he he jumps in, it's a triple threat last man standing, and all he has to do is stand there and win. That would be the worst that would be one of the worst booking decisions in pro wrestling history. WCW if we saw style. that happen. Yeah. Where he didn't even pin anybody. He just cashed it in and stood there and won the and, and won the undisputed. Like I'd almost appreciate for how I'd almost appreciate it for how gaudy and awful it would be, but uh I guess that that's our worst case scenario now. I had a DM that came in from JL3 at D underscore Goonies. He goes, I came in with an interesting thought. I know you hated the riddle loss, but do you think we will get the exact same scenario from WrestleMania 31 he's referring to at SummerSlam? Riddle obviously taking the Randy spot and beating Rollins one-on-one in similar fashion early in the show, even the RKO off the stomp potentially, then having Seth cash in later in the night. It is kind of set up for that. I have to say, there's clearly going to be a Riddle-Rollins feud. That match is not going to happen at Money in the Bank. As you noted, it seems like they're scheduling that for SummerSlam. And if they're going to do a cash-in at SummerSlam, there it is. I mean, it's it's the same scenario. He's right. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like this road we're going down here. Me neither. Uh, one last <laughs> thing before we get out of the main event, and it pertains to Riddle and all this. Uh, so all of this that's happened, has now raised questions about Randy Orton's injury status and availability. A report came out midweek before SmackDown that said not only was Randy Orton's back injury legitimate, but he may be out through the end of 2022 if he needs to undergo surgery. This is not only noteworthy, but it's intriguing for a number of reasons. First of all, Chris, I could have sworn this injury was 100% kayfabe. Like, I would have literally bet money on it that it was fake. They were giving him a month of vacation. Then he was going to come back and fight Reigns at SummerSlam. That's what I believed. But not only is it apparently real, it absolutely shocked me that it's real. But beyond that, WWE is leaning heavily on SmackDown into Orton not being there. And they even touched on it on Raw as well. That was purposeful. It had to have been purposeful but I don't know to what end. Lesnar is announced for SummerSlam. They seem to be pushing Riddle aside. If Orton does make a surprise return, it would be when? Certainly not Crown Jewel, which is only a couple months away. If he's out through 2022, maybe it's a day one main event or a Royal Rumble main event, but there's no way they could know if he's going to have surgery when he's going to come back because he hasn't begun recovery yet. So I just found this entire thing really odd during SmackDown, how far and how deep they went with Orton, not just with Riddle, but with Reigns. And more than that, this is just incredibly unfortunate given they already lost Cody Rhodes. He's out. Orton was probably the top healthy babyface on the roster with Riddle like the 2B to his 2A. And now here we sit entering this stretch of stadium shows that we've been talking about. No Cody, no Orton, still a concentration on Orton, but no clear timeline for him to return. Yeah, um, I I wasn't I don't know if they knew kind of the extent of things because, yeah, they leaned into it like it was a kayfabe injury. 
Riddle being the one to continually tell us that was not selling us in a way that it was real. And I, I, I don't I, I don't know if they fully know yet. And Randy's a guy who's not often injured. I mean, I mean, he's talk about durable. He's been around forever and, and does not often deal with those types of things. So first off, you hope he's OK. You hope he can get back because he's 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 been as hot as he's ever been, I think, um, uh, right now. I, I don't know what this all means moving forward. It's just kind of, it's another one on top of the pile of just all these weird things happening with injuries and people walking out and just, um, it's, 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 it's very strange and really unfortunate on top of all the other stuff. It really is. And one last really quick news item before we get out of this main event, Dave Meltzer of the wrestling observer newsletter said, I believe it was Monday night regarding Sasha Banks. The only thing I have been told is that they are negotiating a release right now two days ago, but it was not final and it wouldn't shock me if it happened this week. That is how it was described to me a couple days ago. So it's been about a week now where there's been rumors percolating about Sasha Banks being released from WWE without any actual finality to it of her being released from WWE. And at this point, it really seems like more of an inevitability than anything else. So if and when that happens, we will jump on with an instant reaction podcast, Chris. But I got to say, you know, I'm simultaneously surprised and not surprised by this. Like the the way they have spoken about her or, or they did speak about her that first week on air after they walked out of Raw, it seemed like something that would be very difficult to come back from. But you and I, when we had our discussions initially about this, we both figured she would eventually come back. And I don't necessarily know that this release is you know, a complete divorce of her from the company long-term. Again, we'll get into the details if and when it happens. But I am somewhat surprised to see that it has gotten to this point. The only way I could believe that this is possible is if her contract is coming up inside of like six months and she basically told them, I am not renewing. You might as well just release me now. Yeah, I, I don't know. We'll get into the specifics and the speculation and, and all that stuff if and when it becomes official, but it's, 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 I I'm surprised it has gotten to this point so far. We, we, we predict at the time that they would react. It's also noticeable, no, notable from what I've seen, at least that we have heard about Sasha and haven't heard anything about Naomi. Um, I, I don't really know, but, um, yeah, it's, um, I don't really know. I don't really know what to think yet. Really. I just, I'm kind of waiting for the finality of it for it to finally sink in and then we kind of get into it. But to this point, until something happens, you know, I don't want to get too deep into it yet because you never know. Exactly. So that is the, I don't know, man. I said four part. It felt like a six part main event. Maybe <laughs> one of the longest um, main events in terms of topics that we've ever done in the history of this show. Now, Vintage Chris Vanini will be bouncing at some point. He has a lot of stuff going on in his personal life, but we're going to try to get as much of him in this show as possible by quickly sliding into the good, the bad, and the ugly. So Bianca Belair opened Raw to announce that Rhea Ripley has not been medically cleared to face her for the Raw women's title at Money in the Bank. She indicated that match would happen in the future 
And then she announced a fatal five-way number one contendership match involving Alexa Bliss, Liv Morgan, Carmella, Asuka, and Becky Lynch. And she said Becky's name with disdain at the end. So Lynch entered the ring to put herself over. Asuka again made fun of Becky crying like a baby. Liv told Becky she has more to worry about than Asuka, and she would trade her money in the bank opportunity to face Belair one-on-one without question. Then Mella said Morgan should be out of the match because she's not a former champion like everyone else. Mella pointed out Liv only qualified in a tag team match. Then Bliss made a James Ellsworth diss and said Mella's never succeeded on her own before Belair got the entire match started. So, you know, we'll get to the match in a moment. WWE cannot catch a break when it comes to injuries or scheduled women's title matches. This is the third of four planned women's matches that has been changed due to no fault of the champions or most people in WWE. It bothered me that Dewdrop was not in this number one contendership, especially since she's been there. And Mella was making, I think, her first appearance on TV since WrestleMania, maybe in like two and a half months. I think she made she made one she made one appearance, I think, right for around her wedding or something like that. That was it. But nothing Got it. substantial. But it hasn't done shit. She hasn't been there. Dewdrop's been there. She's been wrestling. This is also a spot where I really felt they should have done a gauntlet instead of a fatal five-way, both because they've done two of these fatal X-way matches recently, one on Raw, one on SmackDown, and a gauntlet helps a number one contender get over and prove to be worthy of the number one contendership. So there was nothing wrong with this booking per se, but I will say that it was pretty uninspired. Well, I, I like the idea of the gauntlet, except for they did do a gauntlet later on. In but Raw. we didn't know that at short, the time. We didn't know it at the time, but we do now. I just want to, we, we, we know that they did, did eventually do a gauntlet. Um, I was just like, Fatal five-way again. This feels like the third or f- fourth one we've done in a handful of weeks. It doesn't feel special anymore. Make it a make it a, a quick tournament or something like that. Do two triple threats and the two winners face next week or something like that. Like if the winner is going to be Carmella, you know, like it's okay if we don't know until the go home who her who her uh, challenger is going to be. So just do something a little bit different. It like you said, it wasn't it wasn't bad. We got good people involved. Would have liked to would have liked to include Dewdrop as well considering we're kind of getting the same four or five people in these matches every time. Um, But, you know, it's a tough situation and I get why they did it. So let's get to the match. Fatal five-way. We had Becky and Asuka. They were focused on each other whenever possible. Mella pushed Liv off the top rope into the others outside. Mella did a handstand hurricanrana of Becky onto Liv for a broken fall. Bliss broke up the Asuka lock on Mella. Liv tried to missile dropkick Lynch, but instead hit Asuka. Lynch hit Asuka with the manhandle slam, but Bliss broke it with Twisted Bliss, only for a double broken fall. Fans gave it a This Is Awesome chant. Asuka tried to boot Lynch, but hit Bliss. Then Liv hit a springboard codebreaker. Lynch held the ropes on Oblivion. Asuka broke the fall after a manhandle slam. Liv got her knees up on Twisted Bliss, only to eat a super kick from Mella straight to the face for the win in about 13 minutes. Later backstage, Mella attacked Belair during an interview. Given Liv and Bliss were already in Money in the Bank, Lynch and Asuka were scheduled for a qualifier all week, and Mella was the only other woman in the match who had kind of just returned and was fresh, I would say it was pretty obvious that she was going to be the winner, which is even more reason why it should have been Dewdrop. And you knew, by the way, that Liv was going to take the fall when you saw this match. You're like, oh, Liv is definitely losing yep. this. At mm-hmm. least Belair Dewdrop would have been a known quantity that we have seen on TV and we know can produce 
a banger. We've also seen yep. Dewdrop in a pay-per-view match that we know can be a banger. She had one against Becky Lynch, even though the fans at that show did not give it enough credit. In fact, they were kind of rude during that match. So I disliked the decision to go with Mella here. But at the same time, it was a pretty good match at 3.25, 3.5 stars. It was a B match. I don't know exactly the number right now. And I thought the 30-minute opening segment was good, even if I would have done it differently. Yeah, it was it was definitely good overall. And I've said this last couple of weeks now, I think it's even more true now after this past Raw. The WWE women's division, even with all the missing pieces, might be the best thing going. Is it's probably the best thing going in WWE right now. Maybe in maybe the best division in kind of mainstream American wrestling right now. There are so many talented people in that division. And even like you got all these former champions, people who have done things at WrestleMania. You've got Liv Morgan there who keeps losing, but the fans are still into her. Like there's so much there to work with. You talk about Charlotte Flair coming back at some point. You talk about maybe Naomi, probably not Sasha. Bailey. Like, yeah, B- uh, Bailey. <clears throat> there is so much in this division that, that, that they can put on. Um, bangers and and just they can be trusted now to bookend the show they open the show and they close the show and that's leaning into the strength of what you have right now given all the injuries and everything else so credit to wwe for giving the women a lot of time in the key spots on the show and i I, and i think they deserved it and i think they lived up to it yeah I, i do believe that is certainly fair by the way how crazy is this in her two women's title reigns Belair has had major title matches scheduled with Bailey, Sasha Banks, and Rhea Ripley, and all of them have been canceled. Banks at yeah. SummerSlam last year, Bailey at Money in the Bank. She is having horrible luck as champion to absolutely no fault of her own. And as one of our followers, Andrea, pointed out, Mella was the replacement challenger all three times. Even at SummerSlam. Well, no. Remember, remember, Mella came out first at oh. SummerSlam, and yeah, then yeah, Becky yeah. Lynch came out. That's right. Yep, that's true. Good point. It's just absolutely wild. Anyway, so Becky complained to Adam Pierce backstage after the match, pointing out she's on the poster for Money in the Bank and is still not on the show. Pierce suggested, hey, let's just do the scheduled qualifying match. And Lynch is like, okay. Then he said, let's do it tonight. And she got pissed because she just wrestled. So we got Lynch versus Asuka. This ended up being the main event of Raw. Becky tried to attack before the bell, but Asuka caught her on the ramp. Asuka completely missed a codebreaker and Lynch still sold it, which I didn't really like. Asuka got a few near falls after a hip attack and an ankle lock. Lynch threw her into the middle turnbuckle. Asuka dodged a draping leg drop and put the Asuka lock on with the ropes. She had a missile drop kick for a 2.8 and later a lifted knee on Becky outside. They both beat a count out at nine. Asuka countered the manhandle slam, but Lynch locked her up for a near fall. Asuka then escaped disarmor for a two count and hit a great knockout kick to the head for a clean one, two, three. After the bell, Lynch fully lost her shit and tore up the ringside area. Now, it's fair to say, at least as far as I was concerned, the expectation was Becky would win here. And I loved how this booking countered my expectations. I talk about that all the time. Not just with the creative decision, but with the finish. A clean knockout kick to the head from Asuka. She never wins like that. Becky never loses like that. Lynch, by the way, sold that kick like absolute death. Rock level selling. <laughs> she was knocked out cold and just face planted right on the canvas. 
I thought it was awesome. Plus, they finally fully leaned into the downward spiral angle. I've been talking about it for weeks. She keeps getting upset and irked. She needs to lose her shit. She finally lost her shit. This match was about 3.5 stars and a B. You could argue another quarter star, but it was only 13 minutes. We've seen them do better together recently. And I couldn't go, that's why I didn't go higher than that. But it was a really strong main event and a really good piece of booking. I mean, it's, it's the second time in about a month and a half, two months that, that, that the two of them have main evented, uh, main evented Raw. So um, it, 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 they always put on something solid. You know, they can take it to another level at times. Love the finish to this match. Um, it was it was great. It, it, you're right. I I, I kind of thought Becky might win. Part of me was thinking, man, Oscar has been taking a lot of pins recently, um, but she didn't. She she gets the win here. So that, that that's good. I, I, I don't know what's going to happen with Becky next. You know, they've hinted at a downward spiral, then kind of not. I would love for them to go back to that idea we had a couple weeks ago where Becky just goes and takes the 24-7 championship and and starts parading around with the 24-7 championship like that's the greatest thing in the world or like she's kind of losing her mind or something like that. Uh, I'd love for them to do that. But again, if you're going to do the downward spiral, really lean into it. Have her lose to Dana Brooke or something like that or just you know, like a real, I mean, like in a real, real kind of way or something like that. So, um yeah, and Becky's going to make whatever she gets work because she's she's great. So um, this was definitely a good, and I'm I'm, I'm kind of curious where it goes. I, I do believe Becky's going to get into the last chance qualifier. I mean, I, I have to assume wait, she's in this wait, match. She's on that, the poster. She's going to be on the show. That, oh, by the way, that was a great line she said, that she has to be on Money in the Bank because she's on the poster. Like, that it's was true. just a great... I don't, know if, I don't know if that was just written or if she just decided to say it, but great line, and it's 100% true. So I, I, were, I love that. I there were actually that. a bunch of comments throughout all the women's promos as they kept walking mm-hmm. to the ring in the opening segment, Becky back there, that they weren't necessarily breaking the fourth wall, but they were all little nuggets that if you didn't follow them online or you weren't aware of things outside of what you got on your television would have flown over your head. But all of them made like these little interesting like tweak comments that like just stabbed at each other. And I, I loved it. I just thought all of them were really good. Uh, and this whole thing was really well put together. Was it great? It, I wouldn't yeah. call it great, but top to bottom, it was very good. By the way, the the Twitter fights between the women's wrestlers are feistier than anything you see in the NBA. I mean, what like, happened I, with it, Ronda Rousey and Natalia this week? Was, there, there's Ronda Rousey and Natalia. Becky and Ronda had some stuff back in the day. Um, they they kind of made a reference to... to to things people are posting among one of those comments on the, on the parade promo at the, the opening of raw, the women's wrestlers in WWE on social media, they get after each other and I like it. And, and I, I'm glad that they were able to kind of bring some of that out to, to the show. So let's keep going here. Uh, Pierce came out to decide on SmackDown, whether Drew McIntyre or Sheamus would enter money in the bank after their double disqualification finished last week. McIntyre looked outstanding, by the way. He was wearing all black. His hair was slicked back. He said he would beat someone's ass if he's not in the match. Sheamus pointed out he successfully cashed in Money in the Bank, while McIntyre got cashed in on. Pierce announced Sheamus is in, so Sheamus talked shit. McIntyre beat his ass out of the ring. Pierce finally stopped him, said, hey, Drew, you're also in the match. McIntyre then shrugged and hit Sheamus with a claymore. Look, was there a comedy aspect to this that I enjoyed? Sure. But this was bad, Okay. I'm not suggesting it wasn't entertaining. And I'm not saying the decision was completely nonsensical because the kayfabe decision, it was fine. But the segment was illogical and silly. Plus, 
why is McIntyre even in Money in the Bank when he's already got a title match scheduled at Clash at the Castle? So, no, this wasn't insulting in any way, but I'm not a fan of tag teams qualifying, like in a tag team match where two women qualify like they did on Raw. And I'm not a fan of two people qualifying from double disqualification matches. Put them each in singles matches with other opponents and let them win their way in. So no, um, entertaining to a degree, but I have to say bad. Yeah, no, this was bad. I, I, I They drag it out for a week. They bring them out just to do that. I was like, that's it. Like, that's what we're doing. He needed that a week to bad. decide that they're both in the match. Consider considering how often they just announce title matches on a whim on social media, like they, this one. They the announced one the main event of SummerSlam at at eleven yeah. uh, at ten oh five p.m. on Friday. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. You, you can't drag this out like it's a major announcement when you're just willy nilly throwing all this stuff out there. It, it just it doesn't doesn't match up to to the to the level. Uh, so we also on SmackDown had Raquel Rodriguez against Shayna Baszler in a qualifier. Baszler promised Rodriguez would feel physical and emotional pain. Lacey Evans was on commentary. Baszler went after Raquel's knee for nearly three minutes, and then Rodriguez hit the Texana bomb for the win. Evans was horrendous on commentary. Rodriguez got no opportunity to get over with a three-minute match. She went, I mean, I guess you could say, well, she went nine minutes with Rousey, so three against Baszler makes sense because Rousey's the champion. There's no chance for her to get over, no chance for Baszler to get over. Uh, Raquel Rodriguez sold the entire match only to win at the end. The decision of Raquel winning was correct. And having her beat Baszler is a solid move to help her get over. But I just continue to be bothered at Baszler's lack of use overall. Um, I have no issue with her not being in a ladder match because it's not really her speed. But this was really bad. The wrestling was bad. The match time was pathetic. And Lacey was terrible on the mic. This was bad, but it didn't have to. It didn't have to be bad. It just it shouldn't it have been done yeah. poorly. I, I'm glad Raquel. Rodriguez is in it, but she didn't get enough to really get over. I, I can't say Lacey was terrible on commentary because she wasn't barely on commentary. She, she didn't she, say she didn't even say yeah. she didn't say anything. Like I, I like I, I didn't know what the point of the segment was. Was the point of the segment to to make Raquel Rodriguez look good with the win, or was it to 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 get everybody thinking about Lacey Evans again and moving Lacey Evans' character forward? Ugh. She just sat there and. They'd give her some questions and she'd kind of answer and she wasn't jumping in like it was a very, very poor guest commentary situation. So in the end, it just felt like a completely wasted period of time as a result of that. That's why I give it a bad. So the plan was for Chris actually to remain with me and we were going to do a little bit of a money in the bank recap heading into, I think, the three final shows leading into the premium live event. But unfortunately, we had connection issues at the exact same time. We were planning to say goodbye to him. So Chris has now left the show for the remainder of this episode. But what I'm going to do now is do a quick Money in the Bank recap what we have for the men's and women's matches, and we will move on with the rest of the good, the bad, and the ugly. So for the men's match, we have Seth Rollins, Drew McIntyre, Sheamus, and Omos with three or four spots left. And I look at it, and I'm just sitting here wondering, like, where are the smaller guys? Where are the high flyers? On this show, you guys know we absolutely love <laughs> that is what we want to see like 99% of the time, but not in ladder matches. I want to see huge moves and crazy spots. What the hell is Omas going to do in this match? Someone's what, going to jump off his shoulders at one point? Okay, that's kind of cool. We got to get Ricochet or Finn Balor or AJ Styles 
or Mustafa Ali or some of these smaller dudes in for these final spots. I don't understand the point. There's a couple spots left and no one like them is in. One of these spots is going to get taken by Sami Zayn or Shinsuke Nakamura. Sami, who, despite being an awesome wrestler, is being more careful with his body. Shinsuke, also a great wrestler, on the you know wrong side of 40 and slowing down and really not necessarily someone who's taking high-risk moves at this point. So the construction of this Money in the Bank match, I'm not saying it won't be good, but as of right now, it's very disappointing. And it's just also endlessly frustrating to me that the men of Judgment Day, I say this just because I just mentioned Balor uh, and Styles, but of course, Damian Priest as well. These guys have been completely absent from the live crowd since Balor did his double turn. There has been zero capitalization on that by WWE. They did their, their first appearance was a backstage segment on the Titan Tron where they all just stood there. Rhea Ripley came out, won her match, became number one contender. The guys, maybe they showed up to celebrate with her at the end. They didn't cause havoc. They didn't beat the shit out of people. What is Judgment Day? Does it still exist? What are they doing? They mentioned it again on Raw. They weren't there. Just because Ripley's not there, they can't be there. Why are they not factoring into Money in the Bank? It is mind-boggling to me. As far as the women go, we have Lacey Evans, Alexa Bliss, Liv Morgan, Raquel Rodriguez, and Asuka with two or three spots left. One of those spots, I'm saying it now, it absolutely has to go to Shotzi. I hope they don't put Aaliyah over her just because of babyface. They have been feuding. I have a feeling that they're going to end up having a qualifying match. If they do, Shotzi needs to be in this. She can shine like a supernova in Money in the Bank. I know a lot of you probably didn't see her in NXT, don't know about her on Independence. She is insane. And she will get insanely over and take absurd but calculated risks if they put her in this match. Plus, there is a huge lack of heels in this match right now. In fact, there are no heels in this match. Lacey Evans seems to be like a tweener character, maybe even a heel, but there are none right now with two or three spots left. They badly need heels. And lastly, whoever wins both Money in the Bank matches, but particularly the women, they need to carry this briefcase. I assume Becky is going to make her way into the field next week, either by last chance qualifier or taking someone out before the match. But based on who has qualified, man, live winning would be great. I know I say it all the time. I'm going to speak it into reality. Liv Morgan needs to win Money in the Bank. Natalia backstage suggested the interviewer ask Ronda Rousey how it felt to be locked in the sharpshooter last week, except she noted you can't because Ronda is at home rehabbing. Natalia said the sharpshooter injures people a lot and it even humbles champions. Then she promised to be the first woman in WWE to make Rousey tap out. I'm not particularly excited about this feud. It really feels like a TV feud, not a premium live event feud, but there was nothing wrong with this promo. Natalia, she did a good job. Austin Theory came out on the platform with the baby oil from last week on Raw saying he is better than Bobby Lashley. He also mentioned John Cena's time is up and his time is now ahead of Cena's return next week. Theory then did his pose down in the spotlight when Lashley snuck in from behind him. Theory was unfazed by the Bobby chance. He took a selfie and noticed that Lashley was behind him. Lashley sprayed him in the face with baby oil, speared him off the platform. Then he demanded a title match and dangled the championship over the ropes only to pull it away from Theory. This was 10 times better than last week. I was straight up sports entertained, and this part of it was good. Backstage, Theory said Lashley didn't deserve a title shot. Then he said he suggested to Pierce that 
Lashley qualify, suggested to McMahon, I'm sorry, he told Pierce that he suggested to Vince McMahon that Lashley qualify by beating three opponents in a gauntlet match to earn a title shot at Money in the Bank. So Pierce said, okay, let's do it. We had Lashley against Chad Gable. Lashley did the helicopter into the post and a delayed vertical suplex for 30 seconds off the apron, but Gable countered the spear into an ankle lock. Lashley sold it extremely well for Gable, who then hit a moonsault for a two count. Lashley reversed a German suplex into a toss belly to belly before a great sequence that resulted in a hurt lock win after six minutes. Otis attacked right after the bell for a sustained beatdown inside and outside. I guess the bell rang without me realizing it or something, but I don't think he was actually announced as the next opponent, even though I thought it was kind of obvious by both of them being at ringside. So we got Lashley versus Otis. Otis splashed Lashley outside and dominated him through the break. Lashley avoided the Vader bomb and hit a flatliner, but could not get the hurt lock due to Otis's thickness. Instead, he hit a spear and Gable then nonsensically caused a disqualification instead of allowing the pinfall. They threw Lashley into the post to begin another post-match attack when Theory entered. So it was Lashley versus Theory. Theory attacked right away and had Lashley up for A-Town down, but Lashley made a fantastic counter, catching Theory in like a side clutch cradle with his head right in between his bicep for the one, two, three in a couple of minutes to win his title shot. I'm not exaggerating. I loved the pinfall. It sold Lashley's power advantage over Theory, and it was just a great, really smooth, well-done counter in the moment. The gauntlet booking, it made sense given Theory has Mr. McMahon in his pocket, but three matches is hardly a gauntlet. You would think it would be like five. What I appreciated most was that Gable and Otis both got significant runs with plenty of offense against Lashley. This is what we talk about all the time. There is no reason not to let individual wrestlers in tag teams get shine and maybe it potentially leads to something. They could have booked two minute pins, but instead they allowed both of these guys to look like legitimate competition. Now, it did not make a shred of sense to not have Lashley pin Otis and do the disqualification. WWE seems to not want Otis to take falls, but they don't do anything with it. So like this guy can't get pinned and if he ever loses, it's via disqualification, but he's not going anywhere. And American Alpha isn't really, sorry, Alpha Academy. Sorry, uh, Jason Jordan. Uh, Alpha Academy isn't really going anywhere. And finally, having a challenger pin a champion ahead of a title match, that is always going to irk me, even though it was done well. So overall, this was very entertaining and I will give it a good. But again, as with many things in WWE, it just could have been done better. Backstage on SmackDown, Ludwig Kaiser said Gunther winning the Intercontinental Championship was inevitable given its history and lineage. He said Ricochet besmirched the title and is everything that's wrong with America, all flash and no substance. Kaiser said the title would never be held by an American again with Gunther restoring its prestige. They're doing a rematch next week for the title. I would like Gunther to speak a little bit more, but this was right in line with my expectations and restoring glory to the IC title I mean, we talk about it all the time. It's badly needed if they actually do it. The problem is this roster is so thin and it doesn't have many challengers. So what's going to happen? If Drew McIntyre fails against Roman Reigns at Clash of the Castle, maybe they build Drew up and Drew eventually beats Gunther and wins the Intercontinental Championship, whether that's at WrestleMania, whether that's before, that is an option I think that is out there. But the biggest issue with the IC title right now on SmackDown which the U.S. championship should not have on Raw, 
is there's no one to challenge for it. On Raw, there's endless challengers. Just to this point, they haven't given a shit about it. Now, it seems like they finally are with Theory and now Lashley. If he wins, obviously, there's going to be a lot of people going after Lashley, and they have the talent on the roster to do it. But on SmackDown, they just don't. Like, who's going to challenge him again? Shanky and Jinder Mahal, uh, you know, Butch, maybe Ricochet again after he already challenges and loses. Like, I don't really know who's going to step up and challenge Gunther. Again, they're not having the same problem on Raw. One last thing to add here. It is nice that Ricochet is getting the rematch. But as I said earlier, he should really be in the Money in the Bank ladder match. They need a high flyer in there. This guy is made for ladder matches. Maybe he'll get in next week before the show. Second chance qualifier or not second chance, last chance qualifier, something like that. But it just seems like he's being left out for no good reason whatsoever. On SmackDown, we had Madcap Moss against Happy Corbin in the last laugh match. Moss was announced from Minneapolis where SmackDown was held. So we got a nice hometown pop. There was nothing else special said about this match other than us as viewers being left to assume it was their final match. Moss had a fallaway slam. Then he got thrown over the timekeeper's area. Corbin hit a deep six for a near fall. There was actually a madcap chant in the crowd before he ate a choke slam. Corbin beat a count at 9.5 and Moss caught him running in with the punchline. Then he had a second one for good measure and got the win in nine minutes. The crowd legitimately, to my surprise, popped huge for madcap. Moss grabbed the mic and laughed at Corbin after the bell, and that was it. I like Moss. I always have. You guys know this. And I appreciate that WWE put him over squeaky clean at home to a huge ovation to end this feud. But I remain incredibly frustrated by the name, the finisher name, and now the laughing that they brought back to do in this spot. They gave this guy a 50% refresh when he needed 100% refresh. But look, This was good. And despite everything I think I know about wrestling, he's somehow over like Rover when I never thought a guy named Mad Cat Moss could be. After a backstage promo, Corbin grabbed a live mic and called out Pat McAfee for criticizing him and insulting him from bum-ass Corbin all the way through until now. He said McAfee better watch his mouth or he'll kick his ass and make him wish he was dead. McAfee started a bum-ass Corbin chant and said he expected the fans to laugh him out of the arena. The fans played along, pointing and laughing, and New Day made their entrance, and they did the same. This was pretty random at first, but I quickly realized they are likely starting a build for a WrestleMania match between the two guys. And you know what? I love the idea. I like Corbin. I like McAfee in the ring. I like him on the mic, too. And SummerSlam probably needs star power. They're doing a stadium show. It doesn't necessarily need to be what WrestleMania is, but it needs some of those moments. And this... Unlike the Theory McMahon thing, which was completely forced, this one felt completely real and natural. Very similar to the McAfee feud with Adam Cole back in NXT. McAfee talked a lot of shit about him on NXT, and it led directly to a match. Here, he has been talking shit and making fun of Corbin for a year now, and it's leading to a match at the same time of year, basically. Uh, Last year, I think it was, what was it, Money in the Bank in Las Vegas, where the bum ass became happy Corbin. And now here you are a year later, SummerSlam potentially in Nashville doing McAfee and Corbin. So I'm excited for the match. I liked the storyline, the promos here. This was good as well. I'm going to give them uh, plaudits on this. Back on Raw, we had Miz TV with AJ Styles. Miz antagonized Styles, calling him a failure. Styles called him naive, got a cheap Nebraska football pop, and made fun of his popcorn balls, which became a tiny balls chant. 
Miz recovered by putting himself over and calling Styles a disappointment. Styles agreed things are not going his way recently, but said all of it is his own fault. He said he doesn't run his mouth when he gets disrespected and instead socked Miz in the face with the mic. Then Champa attacked him from behind and got a pat on the back from Miz. So we got the match. Styles against Champa. Styles hit a basement forearm and a neckbreaker over his knee for a near fall. Champa hit a huge forearm, but Styles blocked fairytale ending and countered into a backdrop following with the phenomenal forearm to win in four minutes. Miz attacked, but ate a Pele kick, plus a Styles clash to end the segment. And then Styles put on Miz's glasses. This is like a lower mid-card feud for a guy who should be in the Money in the Bank match. Then you have Champa, who does the exact same thing every week with zero explanation, only to lose a short match to Styles. This should have been a dream match. Styles and Champa, are you kidding me? It has five-star potential. Meanwhile, the guy hasn't said, the guy being Champa, hasn't said more than five words since he debuted. Like, seriously, what the hell are they doing with him? Even if he's working with Miz, why the hell would he be doing that? Is he the Miz's muscle? I don't, I'm not a size guy. Like I don't give people shit for being small, being large, but he's smaller than Miz. It doesn't make any sense. Styles is eventually going to fight Miz and beat him. And then what? I don't get what this does for Styles, Miz, or Champa. The crowd did pop for Styles and that's nice. But critically looking at this, this was really bad. Backstage, Elias and Ezekiel had a conversation in the locker room that was clearly done via video editing split screen. Elias put over Zeke and the job he's been doing, and then they fist bumped. Elias was clearly wearing a fake beard. It was terrible looking. And given WWE's production values, I actually believe, I'm going to give them credit to say it was done on purpose. It was bad enough to be obviously fake, but not so bad that you like rolled your eyes at it. And I, I, again, I think it was done on purpose. So I'm going to go ahead and give them credit. Maybe it's not deserved, but I'm giving it to them. Elias then did his concert in the ring with his normal opening that we haven't heard in a long time. Kevin Owens, of course, immediately came out uh, incredibly incensed and said, if Hollywood can make dinosaurs fly helicopters, which is that part of this Jurassic World new movie? I don't know. I haven't seen any since the original. Um, But if he said, if dinosaurs can fly helicopters in movies, then this can be faked as well. Zeke then appeared on screen to confirm they are indeed brothers. Elias started singing a new song, K.O. is a liar. K.O. stole the guitar. Elias hit the pump knee and then broke another guitar over K.O.'s back. Owens was then hurt and limping backstage, saying Zeke pre-recorded the video and was wearing a fake beard in the ring. He challenged to a match next week with Zeke, Elias, or even another brother, Elrod, when suddenly Zeke walked in and accepted, pissing him off even more. Look, they did a really good job here. Was it great? Maybe not. But was it bad? Absolutely not. It got the job done. This feud needs to end badly. It should have been over with KO's clean win. And this next match, it probably should be a Money in the Bank qualifier, except it's not, which is probably a good move because Owens in that match would be great. Ezekiel, who I'm pretty sure is going to win, I don't want him in Money in the Bank. However, I will say, WWE popped me massively because when they announced this match for next week, they said it would be Owens against Ezekiel, Elias, or Elrod. And I don't know if that was like totally planned, but this it felt like it was spontaneous, the spontaneity of the entire thing. It popped me huge. It was really well done across the board. The only thing I would have changed is this. I would have pre-taped the backstage segment coming out of the Gorilla Curtain. Because if they had done that, you could have had Zeke backstage with Owens 
And then they could have shown a camera angle back in the ring of Elias still standing in the ring, which actually would have lent even more credence to the gaslighting of maybe they are two different people. So I wish they had done that, but that's a very small minor gripe. It just would have improved it and made it even better. But straight up, this was good. You got to give him credit where it's due. I'm happy. I'm pumped is what I am. Well, I am. I don't think KO is, but I am at least. Uh, the Street Profits on SmackDown cut a passionate promo backstage about wanting the undisputed tag team titles. It was the most excited I've been hearing them talk in months. They definitely raised the rent and the excitement level for the match. Not that I ever really doubted their motivation, but it did seem like they were more motivated than they had been in a long time. So what we got on SmackDown was good. Over on Raw, we had Jey Uso against Angelo Dawkins in a singles match. The Usos put over the bloodline for running WWE. Dawkins countered Jay's charge with a shoulder tackle and the silencer for a near fall. Jay came back with a huge super kick, but Dawkins caught the Uso splash and turned it into a spine buster for the win. Jimmy was celebrating before Jay jumped from the ropes and he missed the finish, so he wasn't able to help. But I just did not get this booking. We had Jay going toe-to-toe with Reigns and main eventing SmackDown for months. Now you're having him lose to Angelo Dawkins in a random match? Like, if you're going to have a loss here, you put Jimmy in the match. You have him take the loss. I'm glad Dawkins won. I love it, right? It is weird, though, that Dawkins gets these singles wins and Montez Ford doesn't, when I think we all pretty much agree that sooner than later, Montez Ford is going to be a single star and probably should be a main eventer in WWE. So don't get me wrong. I'm happy for Dawkins. And that was cool. But not having it be Ford, having it be a relatively short match and having Jay be the one to take the fall, all of that in totality, it just didn't make sense to me. So I have to go bad here. It wasn't insulting, but it definitely wasn't good. Uh, Max Dupree on SmackDown was introduced to the ring, but he didn't show up and was instead backstage complaining that Pierce didn't deliver on the audio and lighting presentation that he demanded. So two weeks in a row now, this was promoted and it still hasn't been delivered. If there is some major surprise here where the person that he brings as his first model is a surprise, then it's all going to be worth it. But if they do all of this just to bring in Mace and Mansoor as his two models, because those are the people who he worked with on dark matches, I am going to be very disappointed. It's starting to wear thin, but if you rewatch this segment and look at the faces of Dupree and Pierce during the close talking, I guarantee that you laugh. So despite my better judgment, I'm sticking with good here, but again, it's wearing thin. We need to see some developments, and I really hope those developments are not just Mansoor and Mace, no offense to either of them. On SmackDown, we also had New Day against Jinder Mahal and Shanky. New Day waited in the ring for like 15 minutes before this match started. Shanky destroyed Kofi Kingston's chest with a chop, then turned him inside out with a lariat. Xavier Woods started playing the trombone, which caused Shanky to dance. Jinder was incensed at that and tagged himself in. Kofi immediately caught him with Trouble in Paradise for the win in three minutes. Looking on the bright side, New Day did not fight the Brawling Brutes. And New Day also won the match. Plus, Shanky's chop, we gotta be honest, it was outstanding. It was really, really loud. But I'm sorry, I don't care that some fans may find this funny. It is horrendously stupid, and it's going absolutely nowhere. Why are Jinder Mahal and Shanky a focus of a comedy segment every week on SmackDown? If New Day has moved from the Brutes to fighting these jokers every week, I mean, holy shit, what a downgrade. Next week, it will be ugly. For now, though, I'm just sticking with bad. 
And lastly, Veer Mahan was interviewed at the Mean Gene position on Raw. Mahan, he spoke like a human again, but he was low talking in English, almost like he wasn't confident in his English before finally emoting and getting aggressive in Hindi. He got what chance? And he said he wouldn't stop until there was nothing left on the bone. Then he debuted a fear veer catchphrase, which it rhymes, it makes sense, whatever. Nothing WWE has done with this guy has put him in a position to succeed. I've said it on the NXT show, if you guys listen. Sarav in NXT, who is his former partner in Nindu Share, he is a better gimmick and he's being presented better, Sarav, in NXT, then Veer, the more talented, more capable guy, is being presented on the main roster on Raw. This was bad, not totally ugly. In fact, I don't think I said a single ugly this entire show, but there was a lot of bad on SmackDown this week. And certainly, uh, although this was on Raw, this was part of what I would say was not a banner creative week for WWE. And that is finally it for today's show. It was indeed a long one. We had a lot to get to with the four or five six-part main event, whatever the hell you want to call it. And we do have still a lot coming this week. We will keep our uh, ears to the tracks to find out whether there is a development with Sasha Banks. Certainly, there is a big NXT show coming up uh, tonight while I'm taping the show on Tuesday. Still building for Great American Bash. AEW on Wednesday continues to build to the Forbidden Door pay-per-view with New Japan Pro Wrestling at the end of the month. Please do not forget, last week we covered a lot of stuff from New Japan and AEW in our Thursday show. In fact, if you missed any of last week's episodes, make sure you go back and listen to them because we had a conversation about the Vince McMahon investigation on Thursday in addition to the AEW stuff. On Wednesday, I had what I thought was a great interview with Raquel Rodriguez. And on Tuesday, we talked about the Jeff Hardy DUI situation in addition to the WWE content. So every show last week had an extra element in addition to what we normally do here. As far as what is still to come here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, we will be back on Thursday, not only to continue previewing NXT's build for Great American Bash, but more importantly, in this case, AEWXNJPW Forbidden Door Ultimate Preview episode that is coming this Thursday. We will break down every single match with predictions on what is going to happen at that dual branded pay-per-view this coming Sunday, which means on Sunday, as soon as Forbidden Door goes off the air, we will have an instant analysis podcast. I am not yet sure whether we are going to do a live show on Twitter Spaces, a pre-show ahead of Forbidden Door. Uh, That remains to be determined. It really actually will depend what happens Wednesday on Dynamite. If there's a lot more things that happen that get me excited for the show where there's things to actually discuss, then we'll go ahead and do it. But if our ultimate preview really just covers everything and there's nothing else to say, we may just allow that to stand for Forbidden Door. And then next Tuesday in this very spot, same bat time, same bat channel, we will have our WWE Money in the Bank Ultimate Preview. So a couple really big shows coming up over the next week. Of course, at the end of next week, we'll do all of our Money in the Bank stuff, but we will talk about that next week when we get closer to WWE's next premium live event. As far as this show goes, it's in the books, which means I just got to remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So please, folks, don't forget. Stop being marks for yourselves and go 
Head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave five-star ratings on Apple. Also leave a review. Get it read on the show, just like the two that I did earlier. Those reviews, those ratings are so important to us. And please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at GettingOvercast. That way you can follow along everything we have going on in this week, all the major news in professional wrestling. And you can find out every single time an episode drops and we post a poll ahead of our major shows. Thank you all once again for listening. Thank you to Vintage Chris Panini for joining me. I hope he has a safe flight. He, by the way, is going to Blood and Guts, which should be very exciting for him coming next week on June 29th. So for Chris, this is the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, leaving you, as always, with just three final words. Bye for now.